Hey, good morning. How are you? Or not for you, good morning. For you, it's in the middle of the day. <laughs> Can you hear me okay? Um, if you cannot um, unmute, uh, it could be for two reasons. Either maybe you're at the university Wi-Fi. Uh, oh, there you go. <laughs> it's fine. How are you today? Yeah, pretty good. Looking forward to the talk. <laughs> yeah, we'll be That's really... Given the talk. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's really interesting. We're really looking forward to it. Um, how did your new year start? I hope everything was good so far in your new year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's... Uh been good i mean it was quite nice to kind of get the get the story published right before <laughs> yeah so uh yeah so right now still kind of finishing up some other uh, projects and uh, yeah you know busy but but good yeah yeah it must have been a more relaxing holiday season this year than probably <laughs> the last few years <laughs> yeah yeah that's for sure that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine. Did you finally take like vacation and went somewhere or? Uh, did you? No, actually, I did not. <laughs> but uh, oh. no, we, we, we just stayed at home uh, and, and had a good time there. So. Well, that's good. Yeah. Has it uh, been raining a lot in, in the Netherlands or is it? Uh, just... Today we actually had some snow, finally. Oh. Yeah, I mean it's been pretty hot over here, uh, at least you know for the for the time of the year, which is not so good. But uh, yeah, so actually I'm not so uh, not unhappy with the snow to be honest. Yeah, I imagine my my parents live in Germany. Mm -hmm. mm, I grew up there, so I I you know when I talk with them, they tell me, and sometimes to be honest, I still watch uh, news. And from Germany, because it's like 20 minutes condensed news and not like, I don't know, here news goes on forever. And, uh, you know, they just have a condensed good form of yeah, yeah, yeah. the so public. To, to yeah. keep on, keep, uh, keep track of what's going on. Kind of. Yeah, especially with Ukraine and so on. I feel like in the US, it's not that much you know it's still discussed but i feel like it's more acutely discussed in, right. in the european news because it's the neighbor basically yeah <laughs> yeah exactly so yeah it's kind of weird it's like a 16 hour drive from here basically so it's like yeah yeah it's pretty close <laughs> yeah it's kind of scary no but um i hope that germans finally give their okay to provide the tanks but we'll see yeah what i read is that it looks like it right so yeah, yeah. well let's see <laughs> um I'm, I'm quickly gonna grab some water if that's okay yep yeah we have still three three minutes so you have time yeah, to I'll, I'll be right back yep Hey everyone, uh, thank you for coming. I'll uh, 
I'm sharing right now everywhere that we are starting. Um, I'll put up the slides in a minute and uh, in the chat I will put the, um, the paper uh, that we are discussing today and um, it will be a really interesting talk um, that I think has uh, many applications to um, disease, everything related to neurons. Uh, and it's a really interesting new discovery. So um, stay tuned. And um, in the folder then that I'm about to share, um, you will find the, the slides and then also two movies because for whatever reason it used to work to have like short videos in um, you know when you upload a PowerPoint presentation but uh, lately you know for a while now it doesn't work anymore so we have to kind of upload the video separately and um, uh, Dr. Cohen Cole will uh, then refer to when, when you if you would like to see the videos when to switch to which movie so um, yeah and we will start in around two minutes uh, feel free to share the room if you think this is interesting for people and um, yeah I'm really looking forward to this talk and the discussion Feel free to raise the hand also if you want to participate in the discussion. Uh, you're welcome to do so. Uh, or if you can't, uh, feel free to leave comments in the chat about the research and the topic here. Um, and yeah, we will be starting in one minute. Great. Uh, can you hear me okay? Uh, I had the red bar for whatever, you know, red bar means that the connection uh, is not so good, but yeah, okay. if you can. Uh, no, I can hear you fine. Okay. Yeah, I, I should, like my Wi-Fi should be fine, but okay. I think we can slowly start. People will still uh, keep coming in, um, but I think we can start with the introduction and then go from there. So. Welcome everyone to Science Society and a special welcome to you, uh, Cohen. And before we'll start, um, let me give the audience a short introduction so they get to know you a little bit. Uh, Dr. Cohen Cole, he's a, a postdoc, a postdoctoral researcher, and um, he did his um, he went to university at the Saxion University of Applied Sciences um, and then he uh, did also then he did his bachelor degrees in uh, Windesheim and his master in science at the Radboud University in Nijmegen and um, probably his hand I don't know uh, that so I apologize. Yeah, <laughs> it's <sorry>. really <laughs> totally <laughs> being totally horrible. Um, 
yeah and um he's a neuroscientist he is uh very interested in cellular and molecular mechanism that um, govern neuronal and also glial communication and plasticity and um yeah that's um basically you know the overview of um, the topic uh, we will be discussing today and uh, usually before we start we ask our uh, speakers how did you um, discover I don't know the passion for science or that you thought you want to become a scientist was it something you always wanted to do since childhood or did something you like spark your interest in science thank you uh yeah i never really had this uh like uh, path or uh, like idea like i wanted to be a scientist and yeah you mentioned i first started at saxion which was uh, like laboratory school which ironically i didn't i did not like <laughs> so i only did that for a year uh, and then i went to windesheim for this uh, to actually be trained as a biology teacher. Um, so I, I've always had a good link with biology. I really love biology. Uh, but it was only after like more studies after that for my bachelor's and master's that I really got into contact with, uh, with research. And that's during those lectures, yeah, that really kind of struck a chord with me uh, just to kind of disentangle what all these mechanisms are that make, uh, make our bodies do what it, does and in particular the brain is really interesting to me because yeah that's in my mind at least that's kind of really what's what makes us who we are and what we what we do so um yeah that's uh, so yeah short short answer is no i never really had this plan but um yeah during during my studies i kind of uh, rolled into it let's say nice um and you do electrophysiology mostly i to be honest went to neuroscience you know i always liked biology too and i was deciding between a lot of things but when i did um electrophysiology in the lab and i saw this you know this little neurons in a dish like spiking mm -hmm. and doing stuff when we put different uh, drugs on it I don't know, I kind of really liked it and I wanted to do that, like to see what neurons do when I do different things to them. It was yeah, mostly that's, the that's technique also... for me, <laughs> <laughs> interestingly. Yeah, but it's also, yeah, it's quite cool, I think, uh, as, as we'll also show, I hopefully will be able to show uh, in my talks, like if you measure these neurons, you can actually like immediately get get uh, responses and you really have a sense that you're really working with these living cells that uh, immediately respond to stimuli. And uh, yeah, that's that's really cool. I mean, it's quite different from using like cell culture that you uh, just, I don't know, throw some pharmacological stuff on and then the next two days you see if they grow or not. Or that's quite different, I, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And behavior even worse than you. You're not supposed to look at it only when you do histology. So it sometimes takes months until you know if things work. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's also uh, histology is another craft. That's, yeah. that's for sure. Yeah. And then um, um, if you could bring us to then this project, how this project came about, um, you know, was it 
really hard or uh, to 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 also get funding or you know is there maybe an uh, interesting background story regarding this project um not really from my side to be honest because uh so my bi uh, martin cola so we share share by the way we share the last name but just to be sure uh we do not uh, share family <laughs> we're, we're not related I get this question a lot, so I just wanted to kind of <laughs> throw it out there. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he he already had a lab established and he has already made a name for himself for studying kind of the, the role of myelin and also myelin loss in uh, yeah exonal signaling and, and uh, neuronal excitability in the communication. Uh, and he was already kind of branching out to other cell types. So in this case, we'll be talking about the pavalvulin positive interneuron. So he had already had another postdoc working on that. Um, but I'll show you also in the introduction why, but you know, there was also a little bit of interest about uh, the role of mitochondria in these cells. Uh, so it was kind of, yeah, for, and for me in terms of like the, the techniques that he wanted to use and the project, it was kind of a perfect fit between what I wanted to learn and um, what I could already do, what I could contribute to his group. So that that was uh, was was nice. But like in terms of the funding, that's really was really his uh, <laughs> his doing. Let's say. Um, so it was yeah, I guess kind of a natural expansion of his research um, line. Let's say. Yeah. Um... We are very curious, um, you know, to um, now to leading into the presentation to um, hear like uh, the more uh, detailed story about um, this project. And um, as I said before, for everyone that just arrived, um, there is a folder link pinned on top of the room and um, there is a PDF file and then also uh, movie files. Um, yeah, as I said, now we have to separate them when when we upload uh, PowerPoints, even small movies are not embedded anymore. Um, so um, yeah, and uh, Dr. Kuhn will refer to them um, accordingly. So the stage is yours, thank you. Thanks, yeah, uh, yeah, there's, so there's two short videos. Uh... I will mention them, but also on the slides, the relevant slides, there will be like a little note uh, referencing them. Um, all right, then then let's get started. Uh, and okay, so I'm I'm also new to this format, so I hope I will remember to mention to go to the new slide every time. But uh, <laughs> excuse me if I forget. So let's go to uh, slide number one. So uh, the introduction. Um, yeah, so this project is really focused on um, a particular uh, type of interneuron, which is the provalvulin positive interneuron, which is also known as basket cell, which has to do with their morphology, which I'll come back to in a few seconds. Um, and these cells are really uh, fast spiking interneurons, so they are, they are inhibitory interneurons. And then in figure one to the left, you see uh, a trace of one of these cells, and you see that they can spike at really high uh, action potential frequencies. And then to the to the left, right of that in blue and red, in blue, you see 
um, the the dendrites and the soma of this of such a cell. And then in red, you see this massive exonal tree. Uh, so this is actually one reconstructed BB cell. And in, in red, you see this huge tree of the axon with a lot of different branches. And this combined with the high uh, spiking frequency allows these cells to really uh, effectively inhibit and control the surrounding neuronal network. And now what's interesting is that, uh, as you can see in figure two in green, you see that these cells are myelinated, but uh, the myelin is only found in the proximal regions of the axon. So the further away you go from the soma, the less myelin you find. And this actually means that uh, a very large part of the axon is actually unmyelinated. And this makes it a bit curious, right? So do, do these cells even need the myelin if only such a small part of the axon is myelinated? Uh, but the answer to that question is yes, because in figure three at the bottom, uh, there's a, a figure from a nice uh, a paper by Tsupi et al, uh, where they uh, actually looked at the number of uh, interneurons in uh, control uh, patients or in multiple sclerosis pa patients where actually myelin, and myelin is broken down or uh, is, is attacked by the immune system and then broken down. <clears throat> and what they found is that uh, the PV cells actually are reduced in number in, uh, in the MS patients. And uh, they also see something similar for the somatostatin positive interneurons, which is a, a different uh, type of interneuron, which sometimes are also myelinated, but uh, not so often, but they don't see this at all in, for instance, calbindin or colretinin uh, interneurons. So going back to the PV, carbalbumin positive interneurons, uh, they do seem to be uh, vulnerable to myelin loss. And also uh, research in, in the COLA group uh, from, uh, I think, 2021 in uh, eLife. There is also a paper from Mohit Ubi, where he also finds that, uh, that these PV cells actually uh, are inhibited in their, uh, or impaired in their ability to inhibit other cells after demyelination. Now, when I talk about myelin, what you probably think about is action potential propagation, that these that the myelin sheath is there to uh, speed up action potential propagation and to make this whole process more uh, energetically efficient. And that's absolutely true. This is a very important function of myelin. Uh, but what we also know, as you see in figure four, is uh, that the myelin sheath actually also delivered delivers uh, nutrients, pyruvate and lactate, directly to the axon, which, is, which, is, which it is uh, enwrapping. And these nutrients can then be used by mitochondria in the axon to produce ATP. Uh, so the myelin sheath has also a, a very, very important function uh, uh, in uh, trophic support of the axon. And what's interesting is that these mitochondria are also known to be very sensitive to myelin loss. So in uh, what's typically observed is that in, in MS uh, patients uh, or experimental demyelination, what happens is that the mitochondria content of demyelinated axons starts to increase. And the idea here is that um, once your axon is, uh, is uh, uh, when, when the myelin is lost, 
the action potential propagation is much more energetically costly. So you need more mitochondria to, uh, to, uh, to help these action, potential, action potentials propagate. So the idea usually is the more myelin you have, the less mitochondria you need and the opposite. Um, but actually we don't really know how this is the case in PD cells. So in slide two, um, there is the research question that we have, uh, which is actually how mitochondria uh, are distributed and how they behave with respect to the myelin sheath, particularly in uh, PV axons. So we were interested in this uh, under normal conditions, but also after demyelination, so a myelin loss. And to achieve demyelination, we use a uh, toxin called cuprosome, which we can feed to mice for five to six weeks. And this effectively kills oligodendrocytes and thus uh, we can demyelinate the brain. And then on uh, slide three, on the left, figure one, uh, you see what that looks like. Uh, in red, we see uh, PV cells. This is a PV Cree TD tomato mouse. Um, so all the, all the parvalbumin positive interneurons are labeled with uh, TD tomato in red. And then in cyan, you see myelin. And in control situation, you see that, you see that there's quite a lot of it. And then after cuprosome, it is uh, very, very strongly reduced. If you continue the, uh, the treatment, you can completely wipe it out even, but we don't go, go quite so far in this case. Um, okay, so that's how we basically uh, can use Cuprosome to, uh, to uh, experimentally test what happens after myelin loss. Then in figure two, I show uh, what we actually do to label the mitochondria specifically in PD cells. So I made a uh, adeno-associated viral construct, so AAV construct, to express mitochondrial targeted GFP or mitoGFP. And if we then inject this into PV Cree mice or in their brains rather, then we can label the mitochondria specifically in these cells. So uh, in figure three, I show you what that looks like. Uh, so uh, as you can see, the, uh, the expression of the mitoGFP overlaps very strongly with the uh, TD tomato, uh, already showing a very high cell type specificity. And what's nice is that we can actually make acute brain slices, meaning living brain slices. Uh, uh, by the way, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what the uh, background is of everyone, so I'm sometimes giving a little bit more information about what I mean. I hope I don't uh, overdo it. If that is the case, just let me know. Um, uh, yeah, so if we make these acute living brain slices, what we can do is that we can also uh, use uh, patch pipettes to go into the slice and record from individual cells. And when we then stimulate these cells that express mitoGFP, we also see that they fire very high frequency action potential. So uh, yeah, this all goes to show that, that uh, this method really allows us to um, uh, label the mitochondria in a very cell type specific manner. Um, now what's nice is that when we're doing these recordings, uh, we can also fill the cell that we're recording from with biocytin. Uh, and then using immunostaining, we can actually uh, yeah, kind of reveal the cytos uh, 
cytoarchitecture of this one particular cell. So on slide four, I show you what that looks like. Uh, on in figure one, there is a uh, a Z stack of a reconstructed, well, not reconstructed yet, but a uh, biocytin filled PD cell. And then in combination with the mitogfp expression in figure two, I can actually map all the mitochondria within this cell. So as you can imagine, that's quite a lot of work, uh, but it does give really nice data because uh, we really then know uh, what the shape is of these mitochondria and also where they are in the cell. Um, so on slide five, uh, a little uh, reminder of what I mentioned in the introduction. These PD cells are myelinated, but only at their proximal branch orders. So the, the proximal axon is myelinated. And when I say branch orders, what I mean is uh, what I show at the bottom, the axon, the axon comes out of the cell and then it uh, branches into the second branch order. Then it branches again into the third then in the fourth and the fifth and so forth. Um, so why is this relevant? Well, uh, we actually want to know what happens to the mitochondria specifically in the proximal branch orders, which are typically myelinated. So in slide six, uh, then I can show you on the left uh, uh, an ex example of a control and Cooper zone uh, reconstructed axon. So this is an axonogram which shows the axonal branches and every green dot is one mitochondria. So again, a lot of work. <laughs> um, then in figure two, I uh, quantified the density of the mitochondria in the entire axon. And between control and Cooper zone, there's no significant difference. But then if we break it down by branch order in figure three, what you see is that there's actually reduction in uh, mitochondrial density, specifically in the uh, in the proximal branches, and then in Figure Four, there's also uh, what we find is that there's a higher uh, distance between individual mitochondria. Uh, so it seems like if myelin is lost, then so are the mitochondria. Uh, and on top of that, in the control situation, what you see in Figure Three is that uh, the higher densities of mitochondria are found in the proximal branches. So this made, it, made us think that maybe these mitochondria are actually attracted to the myelin sheath in these cells. So to test this, we actually went back to the control situation, the, the control cells. So in slide seven, uh, I show you a branch point of a control cell. And what's nice here is that uh, these cells, because of their patchy myelin, their, their kind of uh, intermittent myelin, um, what you can find are branch points where one branch is unmyelinated and the other is actually myelinated. And this actually allows you to, uh, to have really a uh, within cell control of the myelin, uh, of the mitochondria content uh, within the same axon. And if uh, I do that, what, what I then find is that, first of all, these mitochondria are more elongated, so their aspect ratio is higher, uh, and they're also larger. And uh, within, the, uh, within the myelin sheath, figure four, uh, then we also find that the, uh, the density of mitochondria is higher. Now, this was really surprising because 
as I said before, what is typically thought of, uh, like the, the myelin sheath is typically thought of as the energy saver, right? So the more myelin you have, the less mitochondria you need. But in these cells, it actually seemed like um, the opposite was happening. Um, but there was always something a bit uh, pestering me because what we're doing here is we're uh, injecting a cell, uh, injecting a virus, sorry, which uh, then labels the mitochondria and then we're doing uh, cell reconstruction and immunostaining. So there's a lot of steps in between uh, that could introduce some kind of a bias. Um, so I was actually looking for some way to have some uh, independent confirmation of these results. So that actually brought me to a really nice website called Microns Explorer, uh, microns-explorer.org. If anyone is interested, I can really recommend it. Uh, on slide eight, I show you what it looks like. So this is a data set of a square millimeter of visual cortex at the EM level, so uh, electron microscopy data. So this is a huge data set. And what's really cool is that all the cells within this block, this, this uh, 3D block, are annotated. And um, by, yeah, if you uh, pick one of your cells that you're interested in and you double click on it, then on the right, you see that it's actually uh, reconstructed in 3D. So because these uh, PD cells have a very uh, recognizable morphology, uh, this actually allowed me to go into this data set, find PV cells, and then find um, uh, axons that were myelinated or unmyelinated, and then compare their mitochondrial content. So as you can see on the left, uh, this, this black line, that is myelin. So that's very clear. And so these blobs within the axon, those are mitochondria. So both of these are very recognizable. Uh, so this is a very good way of, uh, yeah, testing this hypothesis that uh, um, myelin actually attracts mitochondria. And on slide nine, I show a figure from, from a nice science paper uh, from 2014, um, where actually they find that sometimes, well, not sometimes, quite often uh, layer two, three pyramidal neurons, so a completely different cell type, uh, are also very patchily myelinated. So their axons have myelin, but uh, very often uh, very, very large portions are actually not myelinated or they have really, really short internodes. So uh, we thought that maybe this clustering of mitochondria might not be specific for PV cells, but it has more to do with this patchy myelin pattern. So this also allows us uh, within the same uh, data set to compare PV cells and this other uh, excitatory layer two, three pyramidal neurons uh, with one another. So in layer, uh, sorry, slide 10, I show two examples uh, of a reconstructed basket cell or PV cell on the left and a layer two, three pyramidal neuron on the right. Um, and what you can, I think already appreciate is that again, there's more mitochondria under the myelin sheath compared to um, unmyelinated branches in, uh, in PV cells. But this difference isn't so clear in the layer two, three pyramidal neuron. 
and also these mitochondria in PV cells seem larger. Uh, and of course, we quantified this in, in uh, slide 11. I show you this in uh, figure one. Again, we find this higher density of mitochondria in myelinated branches. Uh, but we don't really find this, although it's, yeah, it kind of goes in that direction, but it's not significantly different between um, uh, in the layer two, three brown neurons. Uh, and then in figure two, we see that uh, very interestingly, the mitochondria are actually much, much larger in uh, PV cells, particularly the ones under the myelin sheath. They are uh, much larger. And this actually also shows that they might be um, uh, more efficient at producing ATP. Although right now I don't have any data to support it, but <laughs> that would be, uh, would, need, would be my guess. Um, and um, what, this, what we then thought was that, well, axons who are, which are myelinated are usually a bit thicker than the ones that are unmyelinated. So it might be that if you have an unmyelinated axon, the cytosolic volume is less Therefore, you need less mitochondria to produce enough ATP uh, to fill up the cytosolic space with ATP. Um, so when we corrected for that in figure three, uh, that turned out not to be the case. So, uh, so again, in myelinated uh, axons, the mitochondria took up much more cytosolic space in PV cells, but not in layer two, three cells, two, layer two, three pyramidal. So this all shows that there's, uh, first of all, a myelin-dependent clustering of mitochondria in verbalumin-positive interneurons. Um, but this isn't the case in layer 2-3 pyramidal neurons. So this also shows that mitochondria behave differently, uh, not only within the same cell, but also between different cell types. Now, this was all really uh, quite exciting and interesting to us, but... Um, as you may have noticed, everything I've shown you so far, uh, everything is fixed tissue. So everything is standing still, but these mitochondria are actually also quite dynamic. And one of the functions that they have is that they uh, buffer calcium. So when uh, neurons fire action potentials, uh, calcium starts to flow into the cytosol. And a few papers have already shown that mitochondria play a role in uh, regulating uh, the, the, the calcium levels in the cytosol by taking it up, they buffer it. Um, but we have we had no idea what these uh, what this calcium buffering, mitochondrial cal calcium buffering looked like in PV cells and also not with respect to myelin. Uh, so in slide 12, I show you um, how we tackled this. Uh, and so instead of the uh, mitogfp. What I'm expressing here is a mitochondrial targeted GCAM, which is a uh, genetically encoded calcium indicator. And what I then did is I went to one of these cells and filled it with both biocytin, just like, like I did before, but also with a red fluorescent dye, ATO594. Uh, and this revealed the uh, cytoarchitecture uh, within the living slice. And uh, this actually enabled me to, first of all, uh, yeah, firstly identify what the ax where the axon is, because as you can imagine, you see the dendrites and the axon and everything is kind of, uh, yeah, moving. Uh, yeah, it's one big bundle of neurites basically, 
but what's nice is that their axons are really recognizable by a, by very uh, by very strong branching, and that they're and they are also much thinner, and they have this very strong uh, what do you call it uh, like a ninety degree angle branching as you as you see in the in the uh, bottom figures, and this you don't see in dendrites. So this uh, filling of the of the cell with the dye also allowed me to kind of see where the axon is. And then because of the biocytin, after the experiments, uh, I could find back the, the, the part of the axon that I was imaging and then determine whether it was myelinated or not. So um, uh, yeah, so what I did is that I drive these cells to spike and then record the mitochondrial calcium responses. And then in layer, uh, sorry, in slide 13, I show an example of this. This also comes with uh, video number one, if uh, the, the audience would like to see it, uh, they, can, they can pull up this video now. Uh, what you see here is a part of uh, the axon, and there's four mitochondria, and two of them are under the myelin sheath, and two of them are not. And then uh, on slide number 14, you see what happens if we drive this cell to spike. Um, you see that the mitochondria number one and two, which are not under the myelin sheath, they show a very strong response uh, to these action potentials. But mitochondria three and four, which are actually in the same branch, but they are under the myelin sheath, uh, they don't really show any response. So it seems that there is a, a myelin-dependent dampening of these mitochondrial calcium responses. And in slide 15, uh, I quantified this um, between either yeah, in control cells, so either between unmyelinated axon or myelinated axon. Uh, we see that if there is a myelin, these mitochondria don't really respond to anything, just like I showed you in the, uh, in the example. But then after demyelination, what happens is that the uh, calcium responses start to increase, increase slightly. Um, okay, so, um, yeah, next what we wanted to know is whether this, um, uh, th these calcium responses were kind of reflecting the cytosolic calcium responses. So basically to see whether this is really because of the, the calcium influx during action potentials. And in slide 16, um, I show you what we did. Instead of the, uh, the GCAMP being targeted to mitochondria, we used GCAMP that is expressed in the cytosol. Uh, and then we basically did the same experiment. And then uh, as you can see in uh, video two, uh, again, we see the same thing. So uh, the calcium responses were really strong in, for instance, the AIS, which is where action potentials are initiated, and branch points, which are um, uh, uh, nodes of Ranvier. But in the internode, which is which are myelinated, there's actually no, uh, no calcium response. And in uh, slide 17, I actually show this, uh, the traces and also the... Uh, the um, the population data. And as you can see, the cytosolic and the mitochondrial calcium responses are very uh, similar. So 
uh, actually they, they show the same kind of picture where uh, if there is no myelin, very strong calcium responses are, are seen. But if there is myelin, then these responses are dampened. And after myelin loss, uh, there is again an increase in uh, calcium responses. So this shows that the mitochondria are not only attracted to the myelin sheath, uh, but, they, but their uh, physiology is also regulated. Uh, well, the activity-dependent physiology is regulated by the myelin sheath. Okay, and then on uh, slide 18, I go through the conclusions. Um, yeah, so as I showed, uh, in these PV axons, we see that the mitochondria are clustered to the myelin sheath and that they are larger, but we don't find this in layer two, three pyramidal neurons. So the, again, this is a uh, cell type specific, um, cell type specific observation. Although I have to say that uh, we don't know, for instance, what's going on in layer five pyramidal neurons, which are com well, almost completely myelinated. We also don't know what's happening with uh, somatostatin positive interneurons, which are also sometimes myelinated. Um, so that's something also, although I don't mention it on this slide, uh, something for the future to, uh, to, uh, to look at. Uh, so yeah, we actually don't know exactly to which extent this is a uh, PV specific uh, phenomenon. Um, and, uh, yeah, we also showed that after myelin loss, uh, this results in a mitochondrial loss in PV axons. And then on the dynamic uh, front, or the, the physiological front, uh, the mitochondrial calcium actually reflects the cytosolic calcium, and this is dampened by myelination. And after demyelination, we see an increase in calcium responses. Now, yeah, I already mentioned for, uh, for the future, it would be good if we, uh, we also investigate uh, other cell types, but also I would be interested in uh, ATP imaging in PV axons because, yeah, I mean, if we have, if there are more mitochondria under the myelin sheath, does that also mean that they produce more ATP? Or could it be that this is actually kind of a, um, yeah, homeostatic mechanism or a compensatory mechanism uh, because there's less calcium flowing in? And calcium is actually one of the regulators of ATP production. So it might be that because there's uh, little calcium flowing in, you just you know, put more mitochondria there to produce sufficient ATP. We don't know at this point. Uh, yeah, it would also be really cool, I think, would be to do demyelination. And as I said, this takes five to six weeks. Um, so you could actually follow in time um what's happening to well, while the axons are being demyelinated you could actually see what's happening to the mitochondrial content over time uh, and of course yeah we have no idea what the molecular mechanisms are right now that that are targeting these uh these mitochondria to to the myelin sheath uh, so that would be also be uh one of the questions that we'd like to answer somewhere in the future <laughs> uh yeah, and that leads me to uh, on slide 19 to thank a few people, uh, in particular, yeah, the, the Kohler group, Martin Kohler, for a really good uh, supervision and, and great discussions and great mentoring. And then uh, Bas, Maria, and Naomi uh, 
for their for their help with all these uh, experiments. I did a lot, but certainly couldn't have done it alone. So uh, thanks to them as well, and thank to thanks to the Verhagen Group who have been very accommodating in, uh, yeah, allowing me to use their uh, molecular uh, facilities to produce the viruses. And uh, yeah, thanks you, thanks to you for your attention, and I'd hope I'd uh, be happy to answer any questions you might have. Well, thank you so much, Con. This is really this was such a beautiful presentation and also really amazing work. And it must have been a lot of work. And um, congratulations for uh, these findings. And then uh, also to check if it's real <laughs> a bunch of time in, in different ways. It's it's a, it's a really beautiful work. And um, you know, when I read this. I was so puzzled that, um, and then seeing now, you know, your presentation and the videos, um, I was so puzzled that, you know, calcium, calcium is less and they get attracted to the myelin. And um, do, do you have like an interpretation why that would be the case? Because I'm trying to think about that, like how the myelin, like does the myelin directly attract them? That's, you know, discuss you want to check afterwards or is it just because the calcium gradient and they just get attracted to that, um, the mitochondria, but if it's their job to, um, to take, to basically regulate the calcium levels, why would they go um, to the place where there's less? It's really interesting work because it's so many questions that it opens up. It's really interesting. Yeah, it, it, I'm, I'm equally puzzled by this because, uh, yeah, like you say, uh, mitochondria are known for their calcium buffering. So, yeah, why the hell would you need them where there's no calcium? And... Um, uh, calcium is actually also one of the things that is classically at least known to stall mitochondria. So, for instance, you also find them very much, very often at, uh, at the presynapses, which also there's a lot of calcium flowing in there. So that that was actually kind of surprising. But um, we also know that there's other uh, cues that can, can stop mitochondria or kind of cluster them. One of them is um, uh, glucose. Um, and uh, we actually don't really know whether glucose is directly delivered by the violet sheath to the axon. Although uh, I think some of the, like there's a preprint on, from a, a Klaus Armin Navis lab on, on BioArchive right now where they do suggest something like that. Although, uh, yeah, that still, I think, needs to be uh, experimentally tested. Uh, and it could also be if, if uh, glucose can stall mitochondria, then maybe pyruvate and lactate can also do something similar. Um, uh, and it could also be that if there's, for instance, uh, a high density of the sodium-potassium ATPase, which usually like, uh, uh, pumps sodium and potassium uh, in and out of the cell to uh, yeah, re establish the uh, the gradients uh, that's, that's actually ATP dependent 
so and at least in in um, white matter tracts in humans, it's been shown that these uh, that under the internodes, so under under sorry in the internodes, so under the myelin sheath, you actually find a lot of this uh, ATPase. Um, so it could also be that this is actually a place where the ATPase is kind of uh, clustered. So there's a lot of ATP production, uh, ATP usage, and so you need more mitochondria there. Uh, or yeah, like like I said before, it could also be a simply that it's compensatory that um, you do need some ATP in the internode, uh, but there's not a lot of calcium flowing in, so these mitochondria are not stimulated a lot to produce ATP. So you just cram the internode with mitochondria. So even though they um, uh, they might not produce a lot because you have many mitochondria, you will produce sufficient ATP. <laughs> so I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of different angles to to look at this. Uh, that all it's nice, but it's also difficult because <laughs> uh, makes it difficult to kind of decide which uh, yeah which one to tackle first and how. <laughs> Yeah, that is interesting with the um, ATP um, that you need a lot of ATP maybe there. Another thing that came to my mind, but that's maybe far-fetched, that could it be maybe also the other way around that um, the mitochondria um, kind of um, protect myelination for whatever reason because it 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 could be there to buffer calcium in case and it kind of protects like it has kind of a preventive mechanism to not lose a myelination because you know they are fast spiking so it's really important for the cells i guess to not um, get intoxicated by too much calcium and um, especially at those um, closer branches more proximate branches um yeah i don't know do, do you think that could be possible um yeah i i can't say that I, that i haven't kind of played with this idea as well uh but i guess that would then yeah yeah another question kind of related to this is like that people have is like what comes first is it like first you have the mitochondria and then the myelin comes or is it you have myelination and that attracts the mitochondria and i would say it's the latter because after we remove uh, myelin then the mitochondria are also lost so i suspect that it's that the that is the myelination that that induces some kind of a attraction to uh, to the mitochondria uh, whether it has a, a protective effect uh, for the myelination itself, I yeah I yeah, never say never, but I I don't I wouldn't be so sure that that's the case because uh, yeah that I guess also because the the myelination is on the outside of the axon, so I guess then that would need some kind of a uh, signaling then from the mitochondria to the to the myelin sheath, uh, which is not impossible, 
Um, but as far as I know, that hasn't been established. As far as I know, um, it has been established that that the that there is signaling coming from the uh, from the oligodendrocyte, so from the myelin sheath going into the axon. Um, but I don't think it. At least it hasn't been shown yet that it goes the other way around. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking maybe they get some sort of reward type of signaling, you know, like yeah, yeah. both ways kind of. But yeah, um, it's interesting that um, it seems for now to be different in the PARF albumin cells compared to other ones. Um, but on the other hand, nobody has done such a thorough, um, you know, uh, so extensive um, experiments to to analyze this um, this interaction. So maybe we just don't know yet. Although you showed that, you know, it was shown that there's not such a big correlation because between mitochondrial relation and those type of uh, pyramidal cells. But um, yeah, I don't know. Do you do you think it's a really distinct mechanism because of the fast spiking? Um, I'm not sure if it would have to be the fast spike. Uh, well, slightly, it might be related to it as well. But I, I have been thinking of maybe it's actually, I mean, Again, like uh, I, I don't know what's going on in somatostatin positive cells, right? So who knows if we if we look there, we might find the same thing, uh, the same kind of uh, pattern. I don't know, uh, but I have been thinking of maybe it has also to do with uh, parvalbumin, like the parvalbumin itself. Um, that is a calcium buffer that might also also kind of influence how these mitochondria are are situated. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a tough thing to uh, to really say much about right now. Yeah. Also, um, because yeah, the, the, because many things, the most of the things that we do know about, for instance, mitochondrial motility and how they are being uh, how they are being anchored or distributed, those we often know from from other cell types. So yeah, it's kind of difficult to say, <laughs> and also yeah, like you, like you said, um, uh, some of the things that I found was were already known, but then you know, kind of di distributed, yeah, like from from different papers and different cell types, and yeah. So it would be good if if uh, for each cell type we have a really nice, a good map of uh, of mitochondria and the myelin sheath, and uh, yeah so much work to be done still <laughs> yeah but you know this is the interesting type of work where you do something yeah. and then it opens up so many more questions and yeah, then exactly. the, in the chat um aya posted um a couple of questions um have you looked at the role of matrix metalloproteases mmp9 in demyelination and then uh, MMP9 is a biomarker in diseases such as um, MS, multiple sclerosis. Um, no, honestly, I haven't. So, yeah, that's also kind of what I said at the end. Uh, there's 
all kinds of molecular mechanisms that we'd have to look at to see what what's exactly going on. Uh, honestly, I'm not so familiar with uh, with MMP9 or the role in uh, in multiple sclerosis. I also don't know if if it is uh, say upregulated or downregulated. I don't know what usually happens in MS, but if this is also reflected in in the Cooper zone model. Um, but yeah, um, it might be a good lead. I I will look into it and see uh, see if it, if there's anything there that might be interesting for us to look at. But uh, the short answer for now is is no. I I haven't looked at it, so I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, thank you. And I want to turn it over to Dr. Shah uh, and ask, Hey, Dr. Shah, do you have a question? Thank you. Hi, Katerina. Thank you so much for your wonderful talk. And my question is about the uh, clinical use of your research, as long as you just mentioned about the MS. And I was wondering, when we are talking about the MS, as you know that we have uh, we should think about different types as well as we have a relapsing remitting and another type that is which we call it the secondary progressive MS so and they have a different timeline and I was just wondering based upon your research you think that if the drug want to develop out of your research it might be beneficial in what stage mostly and absolutely the myelin She's is gonna be, you know, less and less by progression and everything. So, do you have any further information that you can share with us? Um, so, actually, I'm I'm not familiar with whether um, BV cells in particular are, for instance, if they are more affected in one uh, type of MS versus the other. Uh, so that, I guess, would be one thing to figure out first. Uh, I don't know if there's, maybe there's already data out there that I just am not familiar with. Um, but I, yeah, but I think if, um, yeah, if we can further understand how um, how myelin and, and also myelin loss uh, influences how energy use is being, is, is affected by these, um, uh, yeah, it, 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 how myelin loss affects energy use in, in particular in PV cells, I think that would be very uh, useful because these are very critical critical controllers of uh, of the neuronal circuit, and uh, because of their high firing rate, they use a lot of energy. Uh, so yeah, that would be certainly something that I think would be useful also in um, yeah in in a clinical sense. Um, I don't know if that answers your question sufficiently. Yes, and uh, because you just mentioned about the PV, and PV, as you just said, that in some of the researches we have the immunoreactivity of the PV. And did you find that, I mean, in a case of the distribution in a very, for example, any kind of a specific part, that they are distributed more? during your research? Um, I'm not sure if I follow you. Do you, do you mean the cells, whether this, the, the cell types? Oh, sorry, yes, the, I the mean, PV cells you want to think about, yes, integration, and you want to think, for example, we know that the PV, for example, they have an immunoreactivity in the frontal cortex. 
for example, in the frontal lobe. That's why we see the connection between the dementia, Alzheimer, and MS mm -hmm. somehow. And that's why I, I was just wondering to ask you, did you yeah. add any further? Um, so, yeah, to be honest, I mean, I, mean, I mostly just focused on, on the somatostensory cortex, which is, which is where we are doing our experiments. Uh, I am a bit hesitant to do any, make any claims about any other regions. Although uh, Mohit Dubi, my colleague, he has looked at the, um, at least in the Kruppersohn model, right? Uh, I don't know about MS, but in the Kruppersohn model, he did not really see any reductions in PD numbers, at least in, in the somatosensory cortex. Uh, this could be different, of course, in, in uh, for instance, uh, uh, prefrontal cortex. It could be that they're more vulnerable, vulnerable and these cells start maybe dying or so, but um, at least in, in the model that we're using, uh, we don't really see any changes in, in cell number. And I also didn't really see any uh, axonal morph uh, like morphological differences, which you actually do see in uh, layer five pyramidal cells. So um, in the case of layer five pyramidal cells, which are very extensively myelinated, if you look at their axons after demyelination, then you really start to see, um, first of all, more collateral axons, like uh, axonal branches being formed, but also they start to swell up. Like you, you see really big swellings of these axons. And those I haven't really seen in, in PD cells. Um, yeah, so no, I'm, I'm not really sure um, in terms of like their distribution, how that would, influence the the network uh but I, as i alluded to in my introduction um we like previous work in our group did show that there is uh, uh less uh, that there's that there's a loss of um uh, presynapses so uh, synapses from pd cells onto pyramidal cells uh, that goes down so the the overall amount of inhibition is reduced that that is uh, that has been shown, yeah. And uh, you mentioned about the lactate and pyruvate, and uh, do you think that this contribution with the oligodendroglial uh, is gonna kind of rescue the myelin sheaths? Is that the role that you can just, I mean, consider for the uh, amino acid that you just mentioned? What do you think about this part? Because there is some kind of drug that they are working with the primidine synthetized inhibition. Um, you mean whether lactate and pyruvate uh, supplements could you could be yeah, used? Specifically, to, uh... these two, because you just mentioned on your slide, I yeah, was wondering. Yeah, um, yeah that, uh, that 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 may well be. Um, Actually, that's that's one of the experiments that we were thinking of, um, and one of the follow-up experiments to see whether if you locally apply uh, pyruvate or lactate to, let's say, an, uh, an unmyelinated axon of a PD cell, if that is sufficient to cluster the mitochondria there. Uh, but at this point, we don't really uh, <laughs> we don't really know. Um, let's see. Yeah. So I mean, thank you so much, Colin, for your answers. Yeah. Sure. 
Yeah, I had to follow up a question. So when the the PV cells are demyelinated, um, how long do they last? Did you like, and do they um, basically age fast or die faster? Um, or didn't you wait basically to see um, how they do? No, we, we, we always did uh, our experiments after five to six weeks of cuprosome. Um, a, uh, a previous PhD student in our group did extend that to eight to 10 weeks, but he only looked at uh, layer five pyramidal cells. So I'm, uh, I at this point really don't know how that would affect the PV cells, but if the layer five pyramidal cells are any indication, then uh, the cells don't start dying off or anything. Uh, or anything. Um, and also when I were, was doing the, uh, the patch uh, exper experiments, the, 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 uh, the, the recordings, then also it wasn't like these cells died much sooner or something, you know? So at least uh, at this time point in, in the uh, cuprosome treatment, these cells don't, yeah, at least on the physiological level, don't seem really unhealthy or something like that. It, but it might be that if you extend your your um, uh, the treatment long enough, then you might start to see really stuff uh, happening to these cells because you get more and more activation also of microglia uh, and maybe more um, uh, production also of reactive oxygen species and more damage to mitochondria. So all these things will, I think, at some point start to accumulate and accumulate. And yeah, it, I. I can well imagine that because these uh, PV cells are so energetically costly um, that they might be more vulnerable uh, at some point. But at this point, I, I can't really say when that tipping point would be. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, that that's really interesting because, yeah, you would imagine that, I don't know, due to more calcium and uh, maybe mitochondria working really hard that maybe more NOS or something would at some point damage, but probably it takes a while. Like there's a good compensation going on, um, which is really interesting. Do maybe other cell types increase their activity to basically compensate for PV cells being kind of... Um, less myelinated did you uh, is there a way well, to yeah yes so uh in i'm not sure about uh ssd cells for instance which which uh usually inhibits pv cells uh among others uh but we do know uh from layer five pyramidal neurons and this is actually kind of where where this project well one of the projects started uh, because, um, yeah, so previous work in our group, after demyelination, we did see that there is uh, an increased excitability of layer five pyramidal cells, and they really started to, uh, yeah, show kind of inappropriate action potential prop um, initiation. And, uh, yeah, from there on, the, like, the, the research line kind of grew to, uh, PV cells and what what I also I, I didn't show it in this presentation but I did show it in the 
in the uh, in the paper. What we also show show is that these PV cells uh, fire uh, lower amount of action potentials, so they are less excitable. Um, so that is one one thing that is uh, uh, which is different in terms of the the connectivity or like the yeah the the, the network let's say. But I'm not sure about any other cell types, whether they start also changing their, their excitability or if there's any other homeostatic um, uh, homeostatic mechanisms going on. No. Yeah, um, it's, I mean, yeah, I would imagine that, um, that they would fire less. So, um, but yeah, it's interesting. Um, but so do you, so they are less excitable, but um, do you know like what the, uh, why? Like, um, did you check which, you know, well, I don't we, know which. We, uh, which we, uh, we did think maybe it has to do with some mitochondrial damage or something like there's less energy to have these cells uh, yeah, kind of reestablish their gradients or whatever. Um, but I'm not so sure if that's the case because we, for instance, if I patch these cells, their uh, membrane potential, their resting membrane potential is uh, kind of similar from control cells. So if there would be any impairments in ATP production, for instance, after after cuprazone treatment, then uh, what you would expect is that uh, this would also start to affect uh, uh, sodium potassium ATPase. So you would see, for instance, uh, more depolarized cells, but that's not what we see. And also, if I look at the, uh, the calcium responses in the AIS, so the axon, axon initial segment, which is really where action potentials are being initiated, uh, there I don't see any differences in mitochondrial calcium buffering, for instance. And we also don't see any differences in the length or the location of the AIS. And both of these, so the length and the location, so the, 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 the distance between the soma and the onset of the AIS, uh, both can control um, the, um, uh, the excitability of these cells. But yeah, it may be that, it, that what we haven't looked at is, for instance, ion channel composition. So it could be that there are uh, yeah, there's a difference in how sodium and potassium channels are being distributed in the AIS after demyelination. Uh, but I haven't checked that, so I, I'm not sure exactly what the what the cellular mechanism is that causes this uh, lower excitability. Yeah, that's really interesting that the resting potential is not different. So yeah, I would assume that it's voltage dependent. Um, see going on or maybe even something changes in the dendrites that um uh, whatever yeah that's also yeah another thing i haven't looked at yet <laughs> <laughs> yeah um do you have, you have calcium imaging right so you could do um line scans in the dendrites maybe and check yeah i did i did a few of those um and there yeah there also there wasn't much happening actually that was actually kind of interesting because there's also uh, the mitochondria in the dendrite are much larger and they're also they're also I haven't quantified it but they seem pretty densely populated in the dendrite but then if you do the same experiments as I did in the axon 
uh, then there are also yeah some mito some mitochondria do respond, but there's actually quite a lot that don't. Um, so this also kind of goes back to what we talked about before, like these mitochondria under the myelin sheath, they may not respond to uh, action potentials with calcium influx, but it doesn't mean that they're not doing anything there. So. Yeah, they're for sure doing something and it will be really um, interesting to follow your work and see what happens because it's a really interesting puzzle <laughs> to solve. <laughs> no, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and then one last question from Einar um, that was posted in the chat. Can we see a different cytoplasma in the cell with the different mitochondria and is electrical activity related to the cell organelle? as a result of sugar intake. I'm not sure what Einar means with the first sentence, a different cytoplasma in the cell with a different mitochondria. Uh, um, yeah, I think, um, I don't know, Einar, do you want to come up and, and ask? Uh, but yeah, I, maybe, okay, let me invite yeah, but, you. Uh, yeah, hi everyone. Um, hey. uh, um, this is not my work group field, so uh, be brutal. But can we see a different uh, in the behavior? Is, is there a difference in the cytoplasma and the environment uh, when it comes to the cells with the mitochondria? As far as I get your presentation that there are different sizes and they operate s slightly different. Um, is there any cell organelles which actually behaves differently? Or am I getting this wrong? Um, well, I, uh, if I understand you correctly, <laughs> um, uh, I do know about uh, the endoplasmic reticulum, reticulum, for instance, which is another organelle. Uh, which very often has uh, has connections or yeah contacts with uh, mitochondria, and for instance, they um, they exchange calcium as well. So ER is actually also a very important calcium buffering organelle, but besides mitochondria, um, so that might be. I, I I can imagine that if you have larger mitochondria, that uh, for instance, the, the chances of uh, ER contacts will also start to increase. And this might also influence, for instance, how, uh, yeah, maybe there's even local translation that is being uh, affected in this way. I'm not entirely sure. Um, then, yeah, then there's also microtubules, which are necessary to, um, which are necessary to transport mitochondria and other organelles to the place where they need to be. So I can imagine that uh, in the myelinated axons, this might also look a little bit different. Um, actually, this this has been shown. There's a there's a paper, there's an e-neuron paper by uh, what's her name? Um, let me think. Uh, oh yeah, Mitsheva et al. Uh, there, there they find that uh, if you compare. Uh, PV myelinated axons with non-PV myelinated axons, so different cell types, then also the microtubule uh, density is different. Um, also, actually, they already kind of 
showed that there's a different um, mitochondrial protein expression there, but they didn't quantify the density and the volume of that stuff. Um, and there were some other proteins that they found that were different in the in the PD axons that are myelinated compared to compared to other myelinated axons. Um, yeah, so <laughs> I'm not sure if this kind of uh, answers it, your question, but it, it helps a lot. Thank you very much. Thank you. Great. Yeah. Great. Thanks. Oh, yeah, and you also I... asked a question about the electrical activity. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, do, 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 do. Uh, well, I mean, these these uh, mitochondria themselves don't really spike just like neurons do, but they do have a very strong membrane potential. And uh, if there's uh, a lot of sugar uh, glucose available, then this will drive ATP production. And this, I think, will also increase the, the membrane potential. So they have a very strong, like, minus 200 millivolts uh, uh, um, memory potential on the inside of their matrix, and this would be this indeed would be uh, influenced by the the level of uh, yeah ATP production, which is yeah, which is driven by the electron transport uh, transport chain, and that is actually what what creates this um, this negative memory potential. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for um, answering all these questions. And um, uh, we've been going on for um, over an hour. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to go back to your life. <laughs> and, <laughs> but thank you for sharing your really interesting work. It's uh, sorry for asking so many questions, but I was no, no, no. It's, so it's much about it. No. <laughs> and no, it's, it's really great. Thanks. Yeah, so I wish you all the best for the research and a lot of grants because really curious to learn about, you know, the next results. <laughs> Great, yeah, thanks. I will do my best to uh, obtain them. <laughs> okay, um, cool. Yeah, thanks to everyone for, for their nice questions and the discussion and their attention and uh, hope to see you again. Yeah, I hope we hear you all again one day and um yeah and we are curious to follow your research and uh, maybe one day you come back and update us on you know the future points you made that you are working on and thank you everyone for coming if you like discussions like this follow the club um our next um discussion will be next week um, Dr. Ilinaf will talk about phage therapy uh, target that um, that are only targeting harmful microbiome, like the harmful microbes in the microbiome, uh, which I think will be really interesting too. So um, yeah, and thank you, um, Cohen again. Uh, enjoy your weekend, and um, yeah, thanks for coming. Thank you. Yeah, thanks and thanks and uh, have a nice weekend, everyone. <laughs> okay, I'll close the room in three, okay. two, one. Bye, everyone. Thanks. Bye.